Welcome to Eerie Essex. I'm Bethan Briggs-Miller. And I'm Ailsa Clark. Thank you for joining us on our journey into the strange side of the county. We will be exploring the folklore, urban legends and supernatural encounters that form part of its rich history. Welcome to Eerie Essex, episode 18. This month, we're going to be talking all about stones. And before we kick off, I have made a promise to give a shout out to Amy Turnbull and her cocktail called The Vampire's Kiss, which she served a plenty of last night and I'm suffering from a little today. Someone's hungover. Just a wee bit, just a wee bit hungover. <laughs> you rock star. Yeah, putting up with the pain to come and record all about stones. This is how much you all mean to us. Elsa has dragged herself out of her bed, My dusted hole. herself off, <laughs> wiped off that sweat of the alcohol. It's not quite coming off at the moment. Um, and I've eaten a lot of bacon to absorb all the toxins. Good girl, greasy food. Yeah, why did I pick stones? Um, I don't know. You just were really into it at the time when we when we made up the next few subjects. I really... So, um, I love stone folklore, and I thought Essex, loads, and there is some. I think you've taken you've taken the good one. Yeah, I do have to say the story I've got this time is over five pages long, and I was still researching it up until an hour ago. <laughs> yeah, same here. I have got a couple, mind you. I've had to go a little bit left field for some of them, and there's one there's one that involves a stone but it's not really about a stone. <laughs> I mean, I would say my big one kind of is like that as well. It involves a stone, but the stones, you know, it's integral, but it's not, the stone doesn't do much of anything. It's a stone. It's a stone. It gathers moss. Or none, <laughs> if it rolls. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, actually, I think the reason, the, the thing I was going to talk about first is why there aren't any more stones in Essex that have stories attached to them. When you look at Norfolk, Suffolk, all of East Anglia, there are there's a plethora, love that word, a plethora of stone folklore tales. But geogra- geographically, Essex is where the glacier that cut through this part of the country ended. So we got dumped with all the bits left over <laughs> before yeah. it hit the sea. Essex is the sort of graveyard of the stones that weren't good enough for monuments. <laughs> oh, that's the a left, really we're the description. Yeah. Which is good. The bottom of the basin, I think we called it before. Scraping the barrel. <laughs> so you know, any any stones, and I think that's the point. It's not that we don't have any. We have so many that it's hard to know what is a maybe because a glacial we have erratic. Yeah, what's a standing stone? What's been put there on purpose? Was that put there by purpose? Is that just another load of stones were dumped by the glacier? It's 
Maybe yeah. because we have so many stones, they're not as special and therefore they weren't sort of revered and then folklore grew up around. Yeah. Could have been I think that. that's more that's more like it. And then a lot Essex more than anywhere else, a lot of these stones were purposefully used in the building of uh Christian churches, monasteries. It's almost like using the pagan or Neolithic um stones sort mm. of like was a big thing. It was sort of like claiming it back for them. I have a very small story later that has that kind of uh, thread running through it, actually. I think we're going to find a couple tonight. But without further ado, would it's you like you. my first story? Yes, I would like your first story, please. Okay. This one is a short one, but it is from our favourite person, Wesley H. Downs. Oh, lovely Wesley. Oh, do you know what? I, I was speaking, you know, Paul Gledhill from Anomaly and Astonishing Legends. He, he's met Wesley. Wow. Yeah, I know. I know and um Did he faint? Was, yeah, I was like, can you get in contact <laughs> with his son? <laughs> so you never know. I've got him on the hunt for um again, it sounds really ominous. I don't want to hunt down Wesley's son. I want to, but with good She's coming for you with spears. I'm not <laughs> She has spears. And a net. <laughs> By the way, if you hear some random weird popping in the background, I uh, seem to be in the middle of a fireworks show at the moment, as I am for the whole of October and November. Oh, oh yeah, because you get it, you get the echo from Castle Park, don't you? Yeah, but it's everyone around here starts oh. se- sending off fireworks as soon as October hits. It used to be like well, yeah, middle Diwali of the other October, week, wasn't it? Yeah, well, no, isn't Diwali a bit later? Oh no, it's after Halloween, isn't it? No, I, well, we just had it at the uni. Oh, okay. I don't know. Oh, it, Diwali goes on for a few nights, though. Anyway, it does, and it looks cracking. Um, but yes, I am treated to non-stop fireworks shows every evening from the first of October to December, basically. So, you probably hear noises in my end as well because my son has emptied out the entire Duplo box. Uh oh. Mm. Someone's going to step on that later. Well, no matter how much soundproof I might put on, it just doesn't seem to block it out. <laughs> anyway, my first story takes place in Ardley, and this is called The Young Lady on the Milestone. So Ardley has a ghost of a young lady who early in the mornings likes to sit on a milestone beside the main road. She appears so realistic and solid that one morning a farmer saw her get up without saying a word, walk beside him as far as a nearby farmhouse where she walked right through the closed front door, and it was only then it was realised that she was a ghost. This young lady has been seen sitting on the milestone many times over the years, but seldom has it been realised that she was actually a ghost. Perhaps she once had some connection to that farmhouse. There's only a short one. Yeah, it's interesting though. Is there any description of the lady, or is it? No, but I will put this on her Instagram. For you, Elsa, there is uh, etching. Oh, yeah. It kind of looks like a man in that drawing, but... It does, doesn't it? Or someone from the 80s, you've got big hoop earrings on. (laughs) But I've heard that a couple of times where roadside ghosts um, appear so real that they only really, if if they've been driven past or walked past without any incident, you just assumed it was a person. It's only when someone's gone by. I think Owen from Time Between Times, he was saying that when he was a policeman, he was driving past a, an old bus stop, but this was in the middle of nowhere. And he was in his cop car, because he was a police cop car in America. He was in his police car, and he was driving past um, this lonely stretch of road and this um, bus stop. 
and he saw an old lady there and mm. he was going on and he thought hang on now that that there's no buses at this time tonight maybe she needs help so he went back and there was no one there and then these lads came up bombing along in their car and they saw the police car and was like oh, oh, oh no and they pulled up and then he went across it was like all right lads what's going on here then and they said that um, they were ghost hunting because apparently there was a ghost of an old lady seen on that stretch of road on that night. Oh, wow. That sounds very like the, um, you know, he did that uh, sort of improvised story about the uh, the uncanny. Um, oh, Tudor Close. Yeah. Yeah. The Tudor Close one. Yeah, that sounds very like the Tudor Close. Maybe he used some of that experience to. Uh, to... Blended the two. Yes. Yeah. But yeah, I like that one because I do like a good roadside ghost. And you get the the hitchhiking ghosts as well because people mm. pick them up and then, you know, they disappear whilst the car's still moving and people think they're completely real. Well, there's one in Wales, um, and this does sound like an urban legend. It's near Swansea and there's a, a little re- a girl in a red coat that likes to get in a car. And there was one um, story where a taxi driver was uh, coming along and it was raining really hard and there's a thunderstorm and he saw this little girl on the side of the road in a red coat and he pulled up and he said oh you know do you live far and then she said she lived in the village and he drove to the village stopped outside the house she said she was in and she went inside and the next day he realized that she'd left her umbrella in the car and he went back and seriously apparently he knocked on the door and they went, well she's been dead for 10 years oh my god <laughs> I wonder if the people though were just screwing with them. Like, I did wonder that. <laughs> yeah, I kind of would do that if that was me. That's a good. <laughs> Actually, somebody um uh called my buzzer earlier and uh was like, uh I can't remember what the names. I'm gonna have to make up names. Are Gareth and uh Deanna there? And I should have done that. I should have gone. They've been dead for the last forty years. <laughs> <laughs> That would have been fun. Uh, no, I just said, no, they're not. <laughs> they don't live here. Well, you've got your own little witch garden going, haven't you, outside? Yeah, I think it's actually disappeared now. If anyone hasn't um, been following this on social media, Elsa, go on, you, 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 you tell them about your witch garden while I take off my jumper so, because I'm melting. Obviously, um, Danny Robbins has his new podcast, The Witch Farm, and I was coming home one day and uh, just as I was passing the the back door area uh, where there's a little garden, I saw a um, there was a hat, a little witch's hat had been left right beside the garden. Um, so I took a photo, I put it on Twitter and I went, this is the universe reminding me to watch Witch, witch Farm later. And then I left it, didn't think of anything of it. Some people laughed at it. Um, and then I came back the next day and uh, it's it, then seemed to have sprouted out of the ground with a big uh, vine growing up through it. So, um, yes, it was getting quite tall the last I saw it, but I think it's now probably uh, withered away. <laughs> well, I wonder what it'll be like in a week's time. <laughs> anyway, do you want to give us your... Yes. Are you going to go straight in with Scrap Faggot? I'm going to go straight in with the Scrap Faggot. Go for it. June 1944. One of the most important events in history is going to take place any day. D-Day is approaching. Troops are being moved from the east uh, to the east coast. Convoys travelling through villages and towns on roads ill-equipped to manage them. In the midst of all of this, an American troop has stopped in a quaint little village in Essex at a patch of grass with a bizarre name, Scrap Faggot Green. 
This is where local legend has it that 300 years ago, a witch called Anne Hughes was burned at the stake on this spot. Accused of killing her husband by bewitchment and denied a Christian burial, she was buried there and a large stone was laid atop of her grave, as well as putting a stake through her, because we know how much people loved putting stakes through people, Mm -hmm. um, to stop her from rising and causing any more mischief. The stone is approximately eight feet high. Um, Helen, there's a load of banging coming from your end. That might be the fireworks. Oh, yeah. Sorry. (laughs) The stone is approximately eight feet high and weighs around two tonnes. And it sits in front of a long line of American tank carriers that have been travelling nonstop for two days. On a punishingly tight schedule, there's only one thing that the convoy can do. A GI lassos the stone with a wire rope and it is wrenched out of the ground and pushed away from the road by a bulldozer. Unobstructed, the convoy moves, these great trucks thundering along where the stone had just been embedded for 200 years up until that very moment. The village must have been a hive of activity for those few hours when the Americans had descended on them, and afterwards the quiet would have seemed even quieter still. However, there would be no peace in Great Lee after this incident. A few hours after the stone had been exercised from its hole, a clamour of church bells began from the local church. Now, this wouldn't have been an unusual sound, except this was the middle of the night, and no one was in or anywhere near the church at this time. Following Sunday, according to the villagers, the bells began to ring in reverse. Again, no one was in the church or anywhere near it. The church clock could also... Dong, ding, instead of ding, dong. (laughs) I'm not entirely sure. I was trying to figure this out, whether it was... um, Because they have a clock on the church as well, which I'm about to speak about. Um, And I think think the clock has chimes and they also have the bells. But the the church clock had also begun behaving weirdly. At 2.30am every night, it was tolling midnight. So... If the village thought that these strange manifestations were going to be centred on the church alone, they were sorely mistaken. Local farmers started to have their crops and livestock interfered with. At first, it wasn't too strange. I mean, strange, but not horrific. Haystacks were pushed over. Crops from one field were found in another field. Local farmers claimed that there wasn't any incidental weather that would have caused this. And a local builder also found that his scaffolding poles had been scattered about the yard one night in what he described as a completely impossible manner. The builder himself said that um, he didn't even hear the sounds of them being moved. Chickens had stopped laying eggs in the village. Another man found that his chickens and rabbits had switched coops in the middle of the night. Um, And there was no break and no explanation for how this could happen. Sheep were found in fields of people that they did not belong to and with no evidence that the gates had been broken or hedges had been um, cut down. The interference escalated. Chickens were found drowned in water butts. 30 sheep and two horses were found dead in their field. And the three geese owned by the landlord of the local pub mysteriously disappeared, never to be seen again. Nearly every adult in the village had a poltergeist-like activity at this point on their property. Rabbits were also found roosting on eggs and respect and a respectable widow awoke one morning to find that all of the jackets of her books had been switched. According to the newspapers, the landlord at St. 
St. Anne's Castle Inn was doing a brisk trade in ale as he poured pint after pint for inquisitive reporters who had flocked to the area. He delighted in regaling them with the inn's own haunted history. The BBC had actually featured the inn once in April 1939, so four years, four or five years before this took place. So St. Anne's Castle Inn is actually the oldest inn in England, and it already had a reputation of being severely haunted. In an upstairs bedroom, the landlord's daughter had awoken feeling cold and clammy, only to see a dark figure standing at the bottom of her bed. When she screamed, the figure disappeared, and the four-posted bed that his daughter had slept in had been in the inn for a very, very long time, and many, many years before it had been the scene of a murder, mm. the murder of a child. Oh. After the dark figure appeared, the landlord moved his daughter to a different room and she was accompanied by the dog, um, her dog who always slept with her. Though the dog obviously still sensed something ominous and would growl in the middle of the night at nothing. The landlord described the nature of the haunting in the bedroom to Harry Price as so evil that no one could ever sleep in it. It was eventually turned into a lumber room, though Mr Sykes claimed that there was often poltergeist-like activity in the room and it was always found in a state having been cleaned up the previous day. He even saw a man's straight razor jump in the air of its own accord. And he was so frightened by that, that it might come after him, that he just ran away and left it. Um, I'll talk more about the hauntings of uh, St. St. Anne's Castle in later on. There's a lot to it. It gets really dark as well. Oh, good. So there is another pub in town called The Dog and Gun, and this is the rival pub to St Anne's. And the just as a rival would be, he was not too impressed with all the stories of ghosts and poltergeists. He was very sceptical about this, right up until the point a 14-stone boulder was left outside the front door of the pub that could not be moved. Of course, we can't go this far into a story about poltergeists without mentioning Harry Price popping up. He, of course, rushed down, uh, rushed up from London and spelt, spent some time pottering around Great Lees and inspecting the desecrated grave uh, before giving his opinion. And he came back with the diagnosis. Yes, the witch is the culprit. And all that had happened in Great Lees was because the witch had been, des- uh, the, the grave had been desecrated. He said the grave must be restored and the stone put back. He warned that its orientation should be north to south and it must be precise. Of course, this was done at midnight on Friday the 13th. A band of villagers heaved the stone back into place, but would this bring an end to the witch's reign of terror? The next morning, the stone was askew and spelled out in bundles of oak twigs from a nearby tree somebody had written, non in sum. A a GI from the nearby base at Boreham translated this as nobody's home. (gasps) That's really creepy. It is. It's good, isn't it? Despite this last message, the hauntings did stop and peace came back to Great Lees eventually. The story above is what I've managed to piece together from press clippings that date between 1944 and 1966. So some of these came about 20 years after the original incident. Some were being related at the time it was happening. For a good 20 years, people were still talking about this incident in national newspapers. And you can see the story changing somewhat between the tellings. You can see where little errors sneak in when the story leaves Essex and ends up going all the way to Liverpool or Leicester. There's an interesting thread in some of the papers about where it it 
seems to point the finger at the landlord of the St. Anne's Castle pub. Mm-hmm. A man called, <laughs> yeah, uh, he did, didn't sort of make himself look very inconspicuous, did he? No. Uh, the, the landlord was called Mr. Sykes. And the United Press actually invited a professor, professor in Irish folklore to Great Lees, a Dr. DJ McSweeney, DJ G. McSweeney. Awesome name. DJ G. McSweeney. Yeah, it's a bit hard to say. <laughs> um, in the, so this, uh, the United Press wrote about this in the time. And I actually found this article. It can still be found on the web today. Uh, back in 1944 and they call Mr McSweeney a leprechaun expert and I'll make let you make your own decisions about why they do that I'm guessing they brought him in to add even more color to this fanciful story but Dr McSweeney came back with a diagnosis of hoax probably perpetrated by none other than Mr Sykes also that message non in some it was translated by an American GI for the villages and several things about that just ring a bit untrue for me Assuming that a woman accused of witchcraft two to 300 years ago would be speaking or even be able to write in Latin is just such an American thing, isn't it? Mm. She was speak, she would have been somebody from a poor background. Um, and Latin at this point is mainly only really used in church. Um, and this is why when we have the translation of the Bible from Latin into English later, it becomes such a uproar because it makes it accessible for everyone. So could it be that the Americans stationed at Borum were also in in the joke? But most importantly, we have the central figure of Anne Hughes, the accused witch. We know that in England, witches were hung and not burnt because the crime of witchcraft was treated as a felony and not heresy. Willow Winsham, a historian who studies folklore and the witch trials, reported in her blog that Anne wasn't even hung for witchcraft. Her court documents go as, go as follows. Anne Hughes of Great Lee's widow, twenty on the twenty fourth of June, sixteen fifteen, at Great Lee's, bewitched John Archer, who languished until the twenty fourth of June, where he died. She also pleaded guilt. She was also guilty of bewitching Thomas Mead and Margaret Bright, both of whom were wasted and consumed, and who continue in that sorry state at the at this time. On top of that, Anne had also been accused of bewitching a cow to death, belonging to Richard Edwards, which was valued at three pounds. And despite all of those accusations, Anne was acquitted of these crimes. So Anne is definitely not the person who could have possibly been buried under the stone. However, decades previous to Anne's trial, another witch from Great Lee had been brought to court. Willow writes, Elizabeth Brooke of Great Lee's was accused of witchcraft several decades previously. Brought before the Chelmsford Assizes on March 2nd, 1584, she was said to have been guilty of murdering Margaret Cleveland, wife of John Cleveland, by witchcraft. Elizabeth was also indicted for bewitching six cows and six horses belonging to James Holmstead, a cow and five heifers, four hogs that were worth £10 belonging to James Spilman. Oh gosh, two cows, two mares, worth five pounds belonging to Thomas Cornish and some sows of George Filch um, that were worth 40 shillings. Uh, and obviously all of the animals died, which is a nice little echo to the fact that so many animals died later on after the stone was moved. Hmm. So not as fortunate as Anne Hughes, Elizabeth, Elizabeth Brooke, who confessed to the second to the second of the charges against her, was found guilty and hung under the Witchcraft Act. 
um, and was condemned to die by the noose. So the two cases were probably conflated in the minds of the village and Elizabeth's tragic end became Anne's with a few embellishments. Mm. So whether Elizabeth was really buried under the stone, we have no idea. As we've discussed before, it was common for people such as murderers and suicides to be buried in wayside graves and for the murderers often with stakes through them. So if this was all a hoax, though, it does raise some disturbing questions about who exactly was killing the livestock. We're not here to besmirch anyone's character, but do we think it's pos- any of the possible candidates could have been responsible for the, in- or was the entire village in on it or was it mass mm. hysteria? I have a little bit more to read out about St Anne's Castle Inn, but what do you think so far? I, I, I mean, I know a little bit about Scrap, scrap Faggot, faggot Green. Green. <laughs> I was going to escape Faggot then. It's uh, a, a lot of it's tongue good. twisters. Uh, it, do you know what? It's one of those things, because I've been looking a lot at UFO phenomena lately, just from for different reasons. You start to like notice that things that are like either put out to a witch or poltergeist or fairies they all sort of like intermingle because that also sounds a little bit like um a ufo is spotted and people in the village start seeing things like the whole village as a whole um start having things going on i mean like interference with the books and everything like the photographs are taken and things like that in do you know what it also cases? reminded me of as well as those medieval like the dancing sickness mm. where everyone suddenly comes down with this uh, need to like dance until they mm. basically drop dead but it also there's a little bit of brains given up <laughs> it also is very similar to a i wonder if it was actually inspired by this there's a, a folk horror that was part of i think it was itv back in the 70s you know it had a lot of folk horror television and stuff mm. and it was called um stigma and it was about this couple who bought this cottage they moved from london bought a cottage and they were doing up the garden and they found a stone and when they tried to lift it, there was a crushed body underneath it. And then people in the house started getting sick and everyone around started like behaving weird. It was this sort of like, I mean, the seventies, a lot of you know, children of the stones too. So I think probably that's why I pick stones because it's always held that sort of, a, I don't know, the stone about them that scare me. They're ancient. They were there before us. We, we shouldn't interfere with them sort of feeling. And yeah, that really reminded me of like of a folk horror. Yeah. I mean, that's why the, the impression I was getting through all of this is that it was right on the cusp of something becoming much, much worse. Like, if it had followed sort of story logic. Mm. It, it also reminded me a little bit of Hex, the book I always keep on trying to get you to read. And I will <laughs> read it. <laughs> yeah, so do you want to hear a little bit more about um, what's going on at the St Anne's Castle Inn? Because it's it's quite a dark place by the sounds of it. Yeah, go for it. So activity is still continuing at St Anne's Castle Inn. Um, the most recent report I have is from 2011, the landlady, Pat Balcom, claimed that the room emanated such a bad feeling that she kept it bolted and only entered when absolutely necessary. She also reported that poltergeist activity is still occurring in the pub during her residency there. She witnessed the television turning itself on and off, CD, uh, CD stop playing and starting at will. Objects are said to disappear for a period of time only to turn up exactly where they had been left. Uh, which is a typical phenomenon associated with poltergeist infestation. These events included two rather disturbing incidents which could be put down to poltergeist activity. The first example involving Pat's husband, Dave. Dave prepares and cooks the food at the inn uh, 
and to all intents and purposes is the pub chef. As such, Dave takes his work very seriously and uses professional equipment, including a set of chef's knives. One day, Dave was preparing some food when he noticed one of his knives was missing from the block that it stood in. He took particular notice because the knife in question had an orange handle and was one of his favourite knives to work with. Dave searched for the knife and asked all the other members of staff and family at the inn and nobody had seen it. Dave was rather annoyed and perplexed at the loss of the knife, but he just had to get on with it because he had work to do. A few weeks later, Dave was uh, working in the kitchen again, having pretty much forgotten about the missing knife. Whilst working away, he put his hand into a container to reach for a spatula, not looking when he did so. He quickly reacted and his hand clasped it in pain as he realised he had cut himself. Dave looked inside the container and to his astonishment found that not only was his missing orange-handled knife in there, but so were all of the other knives that usually stood in the kitchen block. More alarmingly, the knives all sat with their blades pointing upwards. And when he asked everyone who had access to the kitchen if they had done this, everyone denied that they had anything to do with this. The second incidence of possible poltergeist activity was equally, equally alarming and even more dangerous. A fire broke out in the family bathroom and emergency services were called in. Luckily, no one was hurt and there was minimal damage. Upon investigation, the cause was found to be the shower unit in the bathroom. The perplexing factor regarding the outbreak was that upon inspection, the wiring behind the shower was found to be undamaged by the fire. Other staff and customers have also encountered strange happenings in the inn, including the sighting of a ghostly cat, unexplained smells of strong pipe smoke in the non-smoking bar. In an attempt to discover who the ghost uh, ghosts of St Anne's Castle are, there have been several paranormal investigations at the establishment. The findings of uh, these investigations have been recorded where possible attempts have been made to either verify or dispel the evidence. Among the spirits is said to reside at the inn are a small boy and a little girl. The children are said to play together, but are only ever seen alone. The girl has long blonde curly hair and is believed to enjoy helping in the kitchen in her lifetime as she walks around the building with a mixing bowl. They're also said to be phantom monks and a spectral patron who sits at the bar smoking a pipe. The main bedroom is haunted by a lady named Elizabeth who walks around the room in her wedding dress and is often seen looking out the window. It's believed she's looking for her husband. Uh, Perhaps he left her at the altar or he died. Uh, Two more spirits that some ghost hunters believe to haunt the inn are slightly more unnerving. The first is the ghost of a man named George Harry Benfield. During a paranormal investigation at St Anne's, Benfield's spirit is believed to have made contact and imparted the following information. He lived at a a nearby old school house in Great Lees with his family in 1800. He was possibly a gunsmith and he found out that his firstborn son was actually his brother's child. He flew into a rage. Benfield attached a rope to a piece of wood tied the rope around his wife and his son's necks and turned it until the unfortunate mother and son's necks broke. Oh my God. Yeah, it's horrific. Upon researching this information, the paranormal investigators found that there was indeed an incident where George, George Benfield, who had been hung in Chelmsford in 1875, had killed his wife and son. The second spirit is believed to be that of the alleged witch. Um, so several mediums visited the inn over the years and have also claimed to have communicated with the spirits there. Some pick up on George Benfield, some pick up on the presence of the monks and have described their behavior as anything but Christian. So this harks back to when we did the monks episode Mm. and we were talking about how 
a lot of these people were not behaving how you'd think they behaved. No. Um, and the monks seemed to like to hang out in the cellar uh, because apparently this was where the entrance to a tunnel that led from the nearby priory came out. And one medium whilst visiting the cellar said she could feel darkness and wanted to claw her way out of the cellar. Uh, so another ghost who's been picked up there is a man dressed in 1300s hunting gear. And he has a residual ed- energy in a bedroom room in the building. And he's said to have followed the black arts. Yes. So there's a, quite a few different spirits in St. Anne's Castle Inn. Uh, they do a little bit of treasure halt, like the sort of like the yes. lots of different things that went on there. Um, so the monks would have been from Lee's Priory. I haven't done a lot of research into that because we're mostly concentrating on stones today. Um, and I don't know much about the man in the, in the 1300s hunting gear who apparently practiced the dark arts either, but that might be something I can dig into a little further later. That sounds a good one to dig into. Yeah. I mean, I think St. Anne's Castle Inn probably could have had, um, you know, a, a story all to itself without the scrap faggot green incident. Is, it seems like a really interesting place, but I, I am still scared. I think Arthur Arthur Sykes was probably behind some of the uh, the poltergeist activity during 1944. Just how much trade Maybe he was like, making on all those reporters coming in for for drinks. Yeah, it probably started with something quite innocuous, and then like as more people became interested, the story span. Maybe. Yeah, I mean it. I wonder whether the villagers you know saw the stone being moved and somebody you know was like oh it's gonna annoy the witch it's gonna upset the witch and then somebody else thought oh this will be funny I'll go and ring the bells and then run away and then it just built up and up and up but mm, it is it is an interesting one it was a whole village poltergeist haunting (laughs) okay don't get many of them I can see why you didn't know where to put this in the poltergeist episode or yeah stone one yeah so it crosses the two Interesting. Mm-hmm. It's a good go? one. Yeah, it's a good one, and I think I'll probably come back to it again at some point when I've done some more research about the um, the pub and the man with the satanic practice. Yes, maybe that's another devil episode or another demons episode later on. I was wondering about doing a satanic panic episode because, <laughs> as we know, friend of the show Patty Keen has encountered some satanic practice in Essex. Yes, she hasn't. I, I don't know if she's told you much more about it, but all I know is she she discovered some Satanists in Essex. She did. More to come on that story later. <laughs> right then, Bethan, do you want to go on with your one? This, and another firework display has just started right outside my window, so I might go put myself on mute for a second. <laughs> all right then, hun. Uh, so I started looking at like the two different kinds of stones that you get in Essex, and there's mainly the hard sandstone Saracens, and Saracen meaning foreigner. Um, so these stones weren't native to Essex. They'd been brought down by the glacier or had been brought here by people who wanted to erect them for a specific purpose. Um, and then there's um, pudding stones, which is such a cute word. The little pudding stone. We have pudding stones across East Anglia. Have you gone into why they call them pudding stones? In my very next sentence is okay. why they're called. <laughs> yeah, hang on. <laughs> You're impatient. Um, I know, you just can't wait for the pudding. But the core pudding, um, and this is one of my favourite words, because they are a conglomerate of flints and other pebbles. And when you look at them, they do actually look like, you know, when you stir the Christmas pudding, all the different textures in this sort of like beige sort of batter, they do look like pudding batter. Yeah, they look tasty. They look tasty, yeah. (laughs) Give them a lick. (laughs) 
don't go and lick pudding please stones. Please don't lick stones. Please don't say we told you to go lick stones either. If you're going to lick the stones, it's on your on your heads, be it. <laughs> <laughs> but um, most of these stones in um, Essex are found along ridgeways, used as wayfinders. Whether or not they at one point were used as um, stones for worship or in sacred circles, they were at one point then used by the Romans to mark roads. So a lot of these stones might have been reused. I mean, a lot of, I mean, even in like our second episode, we spoke about that um, monument that was discovered in Canudan that the farmer cr- uh, broke up and used to repair the road. And it seems that happened a lot in Essex. Uh, a lot of these stones, because they, in an area where there was um, a lot of soft stone, these um, sarsen stones were so hard that they were perfect building materials that they were used. Uh, so it's hard to know how many have actually been lost. It's funny, really, because we always go, I mean, we don't, but um, one of the arguments for not returning uh, objects to other countries was that they wouldn't treat them, you know, they wouldn't be able to to keep them uh, conserved and everything. And the, here we are just going around destroying mm-hmm. our own stuff. So we're not any better or, yeah. you know, they are probably able to conserve their own stuff. But I know that always annoys me, like, like um so I think was it someone was having an argument about this on Twitter lately um, that uh, you won't you won't be able to look after these stones. Look what happened to them. Yes, you stole them. <laughs> You're the ones that stole them off us. Oh, don't get me say it makes me mad. Anyway, back to Essex. So I did. Do you remember when we interviewed Wendy? Yes, very well because she was Lovely awesome. Wendy. Lovely Wendy. Um, I looked into, um, you know, she said that a friend of hers told her about a stone circle. Yes, and it was connected to that time slip thing that she experienced. Well, it was the same place. Well, I haven't actually got anything on a time slip. I think I found where it is. It's in Alphamstone. Okay. Um, This is where 11 sarsen stones are actually still, you can see them today, surrounding a church that the church itself has been built on a Bronze Age barrow. Oh, wow. And the stones are still around it, one of which is actually half in, half out of the church wall. They actually built it <laughs> around the, the stone yeah. or through the stone, and that, which I find really interesting. They didn't pick it up and move it. It's almost either they were too scared to move it or it was more of a statement that it got enveloped. Mm, I've won a bit like that. Mm. I think there was actually a, I was, oh, I found this amazing TV series from the 80s. I'll send you a link. I'll put a link in the show notes. Um, it was called um, Strange Things from Essex. And they talked about stones. And one of the things they actually um, showed was uh, a missive or something from Rome uh, actually advising. First of all, there was one that advised they should be left alone so that um, you know these standing stones should be treated with respect. And then um, by treating them with respect when Christian... Um, monuments were erected that it was sort of like there'd be goodwill then people would see or they'd be, they're being and then there's a second one that came along and went now scrap that idea pull them down use them <laughs> crush them so it, it sort of like flipped on its head a bit <laughs> so that's why you find a lot of these stones used in churches it's not quite known if these um, stones were actually originally in a circle some people think that they were actually the capstones of um, tombs in the chambered barrow that the church sits on. Um, and that's because they found urns underneath, but with no capstone on. And they, perhaps they were uncovered and then used around the church. Uh, you actually see these um, urns in Colchester Museum at the moment. 
And there's a couple of places around Essex where there are similar stone circles that um, surround a church, but I think Alphamstone is probably the best one um, where you can actually see this. So the reason it's called um, Alphamstone was due to a Saxon called Elfam, and his story actually mentions the stone. So he came in search of um, a land where people could settle, wanted, um, travellers told him of a land that was just fertile and rich, which was the area of Alphamstone. And he climbed the hill where the church stands now, and at his feet he lay a stone and claimed that this hill was his own and that this was his signal that his clan now owned the hill. It's unlikely he actually put the stones there it, the story goes that he actually found them there and that it became his. So he didn't, the Saxons didn't actually erect this. This, this um, circle was already there or Barrow was already there. And just like Christians using things that were already there, the Saxons did as well. And there's actually uh, some Bronze Age burial urns found as well. So the date of this like burial chamber goes back many, many years. Um, so I'm getting really hot in my booth. Sweaty little booth. I'm in a sweaty little booth, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let me go on to my next bit. For all of you who can't see Bethan at the moment, she's staring into the distance, getting redder in the face. So I think she's you? going to pass out. <laughs> I say I'd open the door, but there's all manner of chaos out there. I'll, do, I'll just cook in here, so like a slow cooker. Come and find me in eight hours. I'll be, you know, oh, I'll be tender as anything. <laughs> <laughs> just dehydrated and shriveled. I am. Maybe then, when I'm oh, reading another... my story, you can open the door and just like fan. I am. I'm gonna. I'm gonna mute and waft. Mute so, and waft. <laughs> mute and waft. That sounds like a lawyer. Mute and waft. Here for it, you. I was thinking it sounds like a Essex village. <laughs> mute and waft. It has. Yeah. It, it works either way. Or like a, a detective. Mute and waft. Oh dear. So many things. But there's another place. Ingate Stone. Because of, of course. course. Um, and. Again, there are six stones close to the church and a boulder either side of the junction at uh, Friaring Road. And they think this, again, was a Neolithic circle that the church sort of enveloped with its churchiness. But yeah, that's another example. But I have got another couple of stories, but um, I think now's a good time to hand over to you while I have a mute and waft. Yeah, Bethan's going to mute and waft for a moment whilst I tell you another story. So there is an unusually shaped stone in and I'm going to butcher this name, Buchamps, I think I got that right, that sits in a graveyard outside of St. Botolph's Church. It's triangular in shape, sticking out of the ground like a mini obelisk. It uh, measures about a metre and a half high, It's and it's a sarsen stone, which is a dense hard rock created from sand bound by silica and cement, making it a kind of uh, silicified sandstone, that uh, and these were deposited all over the southern part of England during the last ice age. This so stone seems to have some kind of homing ability, though, because when the village was going to build a church, the locals decide decided to move it down closer to the village to use in the church's construction. It had been sitting on top of a hill a little way outside the village, which wasn't the ideal place for them to build a church. However. After dragging the stone all the way down to the village, the builders awoke the next morning and the stone was nowhere to be found. Eventually, they went back up to the hill and there it was, returned to its original location. So what did they do? They dragged it right back down again. 
they don't seem to have been perturbed by the fact that the stone has managed to just go all the way back up the hill by itself. Or maybe they thought somebody was pulling a prank on them. So they drag it down again. And the next morning, the stone has gone back up to the top of the hill. Again, this didn't seem to phase the builders because they go through the whole process one last time. And guess what It happens? The stone's back on top of the hill the next morning. Three seems to have been the magic number since when it appeared back up at the top of the hill again, the builders simply gave up on the idea of construction, constructing the church near the village and built it on top of the hill instead. They didn't even end up using the stone in the construction, but they left it in the graveyard. So local folklore says that the devil was the one dragging it back up to the top of the hill. Um, so Doesn't another- this remind you of the church on the last episode where yeah. we came up with the idea it was just the builders going oh it's the devil it's not that we picked a really bad spot <laughs> why would they go through all the effort of dragging the stone back down there three times though that's what i don't yeah, you got me there um so yes another incident where the devil has got himself involved in construction and it has not gone well it has however been speculated that the stone on the hill was actually an ancient pagan site And the real reason for building the church on the hill was, like Bethan said earlier, because it was already considered spiritually significant. And when they were integrating Christianity into the UK, they overtook some of these places. So that is it's quite a short story, but another little folklore uh, for the about stones from the area. I have another tiny, tiny little uh, um, story. Oh, it's more like a, a. sort of a folklore thing um, that uh, happened in Essex. So in Dedham in Essex in the 1930s, builders were demolishing a house. And whilst they were doing this, they found thousands of these tiny pebbles, which had individual faces marked in black and white paint. And it was thought that they were part of a tradition um, that they were placed in the back of the ovens. And their purpose was twofold, which was one, testing the oven for heat. And secondly, keeping away evil spirits from the contents of the oven. I like it. Yeah. I want one. What happened to them? Um, in 1930s, they probably ended up in someone's private collection somewhere, didn't they? Yeah, probably. I got really worried then. I thought you were going to start talking about my next because I realized I I you know scraping the barrel for stone stories but I quite like my next one I was like please don't take the next one off me no it was just a little tiny um stone head story it was I from, like it I like it stone was, heads it was from a uh research paper I read called heads and tales archaic heads and oral tradition um which I can't seem to find the right, the author that. of but do you remember you know the pontefract uh poltergeist the one up one up north up north, yes. Um, they found two heads, didn't they, in the field next? Two oh, yeah, they did, didn't they? And like they had a wealth of curses attached to them, and all sorts of horrible things happened around these heads. So if I was in that house and I was renovating, and I found hundreds of those, I would freak <laughs> out. Yeah, I mean, it's it's probably quite creepy finding you know little tiny faces somewhere they shouldn't be. That sounds like someone at the Magnus archives. Yeah, it does, doesn't it? The, the tooth one. Oh, the tooth one was horrible. Uh, I think we've done a shout out to them before, but if you want to be freaked out this Halloween, we recommend uh, the Magnus Archives by Rusty Quill. Oh my God. 
sleep with the light on. <laughs> I actually had to, um, and I haven't restarted yet, but I had to stop listening partway through the pandemic because the anxiety it was giving me was worse than the fear about the coronavirus. Yeah, it mirrored it at one point and it was like, hmm. But yeah, that was um, that was painful time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, I've got well, I've actually got two, but I'm actually thinking now I might save the last one. Are we going to be doing lakes at some point? You know, I was thinking about doing a water episode because we've got lakes, wells, ponds, rivers, sea. Yeah, it's I'll a, save that one then. Yeah, but I'll save that one for another time, children. <laughs> <laughs> a story for another time. A story for another night. It's a good one as well. It's a weird one by Wesley Dove. Of course. Ooh, that's a shiny gold book. I've got I've got another one for you. I found two of them. So, <gasps> ooh, thank you. <laughs> it's very shiny so, and gold. Uh, you've got a shiny and gold. I got a little pile of things for you. I keep my, yeah, including all of my books and equipment that I left with you last time that I have still haven't been able to pick up. Yeah, well, now we're both not ill because actually, yeah, since the last, <laughs> do you remember the last episode? I was saying I feel a little bit ill. Yeah, mm, not quite. And I was it was quite it was well. COVID. Oh yeah, of course. Yeah, you had COVID. Um, yeah, and then I've been had tonsillitis. Yeah, I've had tonsillitis, but I think I had like I've had like three different things since then because obviously I work around students and uh, mm-hmm. they like to bring their germs into work with them. But uh, I think my I got mine off the students too. <sighs> anyway, I would say this is my fifteenth year of freshers flu from when I was a fresher till now. Yeah, I think I think this has left me with a bit of so I'm not right, but we're here. <laughs> We'll be back. We're surviving. So the oh, this is <laughs> I just remembered what the next one is about. This is about the leper stone <laughs> in Newport. Um, so the leper stone is a large standing stone in Essex, and it's actually both a glacial erratic and a sarsen. But it, it it made its way down here naturally, but was erected by 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 man. So. Yeah, it sort of got here by natural means, but stood up by unnatural means. <laughs> Sorry, my brain just went to a day place. <laughs> I know it did. Like, yeah, I, I, I put erection in there, you know, and it's going to... Yeah, you did that on purpose. Well, the Uncanny Gang might be listening. Oh, yeah, of course. Smut Central. Smuts. <laughs> Smuts are us. <laughs> um, yeah, so, so the reason it's called the Leper Stone is that it actually was situated alongside a leper hospital. And if you actually look at it, I'll try and get a good picture of it. There's not many good pictures, but the top of it has a sort of a natural dip, almost like a font. So this was actually used for people to leave uh, tributes, to leave um, sort of like charity for them. And because there was a, they, the hospital didn't have any staff, it was mainly the pe- these poor people with leprosy. So they would leave their um, lists of things they needed on the stone in the dip and the coins. And it was believed that because I don't know whether it was through some spiritual means or something to do with the a folklore surrounding the stone that has since been lost, but it was believed that once the money and anything was in this dip where the rainwater was, it would wash it clean of any leprosy. There was something like that with the plague as well. They used to use sort of these um, places to to do similar things. Yeah. Um, but they, I think they filled them with like alcohol or beer or something to like... It could have been as well. I mean, there was definitely, um, it it was made larger, this dip by um, liquids over time. So it's on the London Newmarket Road. And 
I'm so sorry. See, I'm, this COVID has addled my brain. Yeah, the brain fog is particularly brutal after COVID. I mean, it's bad normally. Now it's just like <laughs> they turned up a notch. So like, yeah. People talking to me sometimes and it's like, that may as well have been another language. <laughs> no, that was it. That's why I couldn't remember what else. That was it. But I just thought it was an interesting little um, thing about the leper stone. So not much folklore or, or paranormal, but interesting. And we are eerie and we like things unusual. So if anybody, anybody knows of a stone or a stone circle or a standing stone or anything, anything to do with stones, stones being thrown, like anything stony, we haven't got enough stone stories in Essex. So please, please. Um, And you may be able to find us on the road and tell us your story in person at some point. Yes, we 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 had some dates locked in, and now we're re now we're we're changing about partly because of COVID and the fact it's really knocked me and Elsa for six our uh, bugs we've had recently, but it's also happened to everyone else. So yeah, autumn, everybody seems to get ill. So we're uh, <laughs> we're rethinking <laughs> dates, but we will be with you soon, and look out for um, some posters on our social media. Um, what else, Elsa? Um, we'll be sending out flyers to libraries and other places. Um, yeah. Yeah. Come and meet us. <laughs> Even if you just want a cup of tea with us, that'd be nice. Yeah. And of course, when we actually do go out, we're not, I mean, it'd be lovely if you had stories about Essex, but anything really. You don't want any, any story to get lost. Yes. I mean, if it doesn't, if it's not in Essex, we'll quite happily record it still anyway, and probably put it on the podcast. I'm trying, do you want to do any shout outs? Uh, oh, there was one thing I was listening to earlier this month. It was really good. And now, again, the brain fog has now made me incapable of remembering what it was. Um, obviously, Witch Farm is on at the moment. And it's awesome. Ghosts in the Burbs is, has got some new episodes um, out and there's more coming, I think. Weird Norfolk have got another episode out. Uh, who else? Icy's do, Icy Cedric's doing a really interesting um once at the moment, she just done one on headless ghosts and heads being taken off in folklore. Oh, wow. If you want something gory, check out Fabulous Folklore. Oh, and of course, we were just on the Some Other Sphere podcast. We've been interviewed by them. We were, and that was lovely. Um, and you can find us in the Explore Essex this month as well, the uh, the magazine. Yeah, if you want to see me and Elsa posing in a graveyard, looking rather <laughs> dashing, I might say. Yes, um, thanks to Nikki Hazelton for the photography. Uh, brilliant photographer. Do look her up. Think about her for your uh, events. Yeah, she made us look do you, good. Do you want to tell them about what happened whilst we were in the graveyard? I do. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how... We must have looked quite dodgy because we had... Um, I'm trying to think of the first, the first old lady who came up to us. We seemed to get a run of... Um, older ladies come up to us while we were having photographs taken asking us what we were doing quite politely most of the time yeah, some, some of the time <laughs> um the first lady came up seemed genuinely interested but then all of a sudden the conversation went from polite to are you planning to disrobe <laughs> <laughs> so are you quite know what to do with that like oh no bit nippy <laughs> it's a bit nippy and I said, but no, I suppose we fibbed because we did change. We changed it to other clothes. Yeah, we we got changed several times, but I wouldn't say we disrobed. It was more like, you know, how you change on a beach where you just yeah. stick things over your head. Yeah, it, there, was no, there was nothing seen. But it was where she said, because we have that quite a lot here, you know. Oh, my God. 
forgotten about that. I think this place, St. Nicholas in uh, Altus, is like quite an interesting place to hang out. Yeah, I mean, apparently they do do ghost hunts there as well. Um, and there is a little bit of uh, ghost folklore around it. I think there's UFO stuff as well. There's all sorts there. Yeah. And it uh, is beautiful. Yeah, it's a really beautiful. It's a, um, uh, a a church that was burnt down, so there's no roof on it. Um, the part of the graveyard's very, very old. Part of it's still in use. Um, and it's just a lovely little little um, setting, really. And we managed to get photos taken amongst the wheat, literally as the combine <laughs> harvester was like, approaching. Just like Theresa May. <laughs> we, yeah, I can Running see why through she likes the wheat. <laughs> Actually, no, I can't see why she likes it because I stood in a lot of stinging nettles. Yes, she did. Yeah, it was a little bit un- uncomfortable because <laughs> every time because we were obviously in like nice clothes, these like flowing dresses and things, and you're trying to get into the wheat field in this sort of and the wheat ends up going up places dress. you don't yes. want wheat. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It depends on what you're into. You might like it. <laughs> and we're excited about Wednesday night. We've got a guest coming on. We've got the sinister minister. <laughs> joining us for i think he just wants to shoot the breeze yeah the one and only reverend peter laws peter Fawes joining <laughs> us um and he's recently released a, a story about a cryptid he saw so yes i saw that today i haven't read it yet i was going to get into that later it i i do i have heard it and it's um it's well creepy Ooh. <laughs> yeah i think he's got a lot of creepy stories so we will extract them as best we can for you <laughs> And you didn't, didn't see the hand motion that Bethan was making when yeah. you did. <laughs> <laughs> I'll try and catch that. Um, yeah, if you've got if you've got any questions you want us to ask him, fling them at us on social media, or fling them at him. It'd be kind of fun to ask on air. Yes, anything you can think of. Um, if it's inappropriate, we may still all ask the better. It. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we'll still ask it. Anyway, thank you for listening to us waffle once again. Um, yeah. And it's goodbye from Elsa. And it's goodbye from Bethan. Bye. If you'd like to get in contact with us with a story of your own or any more information about what we've discussed in this episode, you can reach us at eerieessexpodcast at gmail.com. Or if you'd like to contact us on social media, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram under the handle Eerie Essex. On Twitter, we are under eerie underscore Essex. You can also find us on Patreon and Coffee if you'd like to support the podcast.